0: hear here for the new series. And it's on the book of Acts. Uh, We've just finished Ephesians, Uh, for those who haven't been with us. And if if you missed anything in Ephesians, please go take time uh, to download or sign up for the podcast. You can get all the the archive of of material that we've gone through. Uh, We've been going through Ephesians since pretty much the summer. Now we're on to Acts. It's probably going to take us, we're not going to go verse by verse through Acts. We're going to tackle four of the big themes in Acts. And work our way through that till about summertime. And then the plan is from summer uh, right through to probably Christmas and beyond, we're going to get into the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, that's the plan of action. Woohoo! Let's hear of the Bible. Yay! <laughs> Best book in the world. Last week was really significant. We launched Destiny Church in Dunfermline. And uh, they had, I, I went along in the afternoon, it was brilliant. They, they had a, they've got, A little hall, but it was packed. They had about 50 people there. That was the first service, their first official service. They've had monthly kind of kick-off meetings for the last six months. But that's them gone weekly now. So isn't that great? So you'll see your attendance here has dropped by about 25 people. Not that you'd really notice that. But some of you, your friends, come from Dunfermline. You might not see them around on Sundays. Uh, But over the next few months, you're welcome to pop into their service there. And I encourage them along. Their services are at half past one in the afternoon so what two o'clock two o'clock in the afternoon uh, in a little community hall somewhere randomly in the middle of Dunfermline so you're bound to find it and uh, it'd be great to go along and support them if you can Uh, also Andrew McGreen and Sarah had um, sorry Andrew McGreen and Sarah McGreen (laughs) had a little baby boy this morning (laughs) isn't that outstanding they're going to call him Elijah I think. I would just guess, because I reckon it would be a good name. (coughs) I don't know what they're going to call him, but I think, how many think you should call him Elijah? If we put a bit of pressure on, I reckon we could could force that. What's that? Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. that would be a good one. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you're with us today. Come Holy Spirit, we welcome you. God, as we're going into the book of Acts just now, we can teach on subjects, God, that are highly practical. We can go out from services thinking, okay, I know what to do now. But some of the things we're going to be talking about in Acts, God, it's not just what we can do. Some of the things we're going to talk about requires completely that you do something for us. And God, we don't want to be a church that just is a can-do church. We want to be a church that has faith in a God who does. Faith in a God who intervenes. Faith in a God who's active. Faith in a God who moves on behalf of human beings. Whom he is deeply in love with. God, come by your spirit. Accomplish what we could not in our lives through this community of believers into the city. God, we say we trust in you. We worship you, God. You are our God. And we love you with all our heart. In Jesus' name. Just in the worship, I felt there was three conditions represented here. I felt there was someone here with uh, at least one person here with stomach ulcers. There's also someone here with a goiter. And there's also someone here with a, a cut on their eye, and it's left the eye permanently damaged and, and the vision impaired. If those people, um, or there might be more than one person for each of those categories, uh, I'd love to pray with you at the end. Be, I won't be here, I'll be across at Leith, but uh, there'll be a team of the lead available at the front. Please come forward at the end for prayer if you're sick. Or if anyone else has got conditions that they need to pray for, please come forward. Book of Acts. This is a phenomenal book. It's one of those books in the Bible that just inspires you to think big and dream about what God can do in a world. The book of Acts is really the, it's, it is the history of the early church. It's the beginnings. It's what happened after Jesus had finished his three-year ministry and had ascended back to the Father. It's what happened next. It's how we went from there to almost one-third of our world's population claiming to be followers of Jesus. It's how do we go from a handful of disciples to world impact, two billion people claiming to be followers of Jesus around our world today. How did that happen? Well, the book of Acts gives us an insight into how it began, the genesis of it, the beginnings, how it all emerged. And in the book of Acts, we see certain Key elements that were apparent in the early stages that have to be apparent not just at the early stages but at all the stages if church is going to continue. Because I believe in every generation we've got to do acts all over again, in every generation we've got to see the beginnings again. Every generation is a fresh challenge, every generation gives a fresh opportunity for God to do great things and manifest His glory in a nation and in a city. So here we are, another generation, a young church. A beautiful city with wonderful people in it, and God is great, never been greater, and God wants to do great things. God wants to do acts again through us in our city. The four elements I'm going to really be focusing in on in acts, I'm going to take about four weeks to look first of all at the Holy Spirit. Starting this week, just as a a little introduction to the Holy Spirit and to his work, and we're just going to touch on that at the end of the message. Then we're going to spend another three weeks on that. Then we're going to take two weeks looking at at least two weeks on community. It might be more than two weeks. And the the beautiful picture of community that's painted in the book of Acts. What it could be. Community models within the communities. A city within the city. And then we're going to go on to look at giving in the local church and their generosity. Going to take a couple of weeks on that. Then we're going to look at evangelism. How that local church, how the impact of the, the early church on Acts had literally impacted the whole Roman Empire in one generation and how God is calling us to make an impact. I'm are probably going to take three or four weeks on that towards the end. Towards the end of the whole series, we've got friends called Julian Lidstone, who's one of the Operation Mobilization directors. He's going to be coming, and he's going to be doing a talk on How to Love My Muslim Neighbor. He is the director for Central and Southeast Asia for Operation Mobilization. And he, he's got some phenomenal things to share about Islam and our response to Islam. So uh, you can look forward to that. It's probably going to be, it's going to be in May time. So that's the journey we're going to be on over the next little while. So the book of Acts starts in Acts chapter 1 verse 1 and it says this. In my former book Theophilus I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. This is a guy called Luke writing. And he write, he's writing to a person called Theophilus. And this is part 2. Part 1 was the gospel of Luke. So part 1 of Luke's kind of two part writings was the gospel of Luke. And then we have the book of Acts, which is the follow-on from the Gospel of Luke. Both of them are written to this guy called Theophilus. Notice he introduces the Acts and says, all that Jesus began to do and teach. You see, Jesus had his three-year earthly ministry from the point he was baptized to the point at which he ascended back to the Father after the resurrection. <clears throat> we see Jesus' impact on those three years was colossal. Still, being felt in a global way today. But we see that, according to Luke here, that's all that Jesus began to do and teach. That actually the book of Acts is all about how Jesus continued from heaven by his spirit among his people to continue his great movement. His ministry has continued. And in fact, today, Jesus is still doing great things among his people. This is called officially the Acts of Apostolic Men. That's the official title in the original language the acts of apostolic men but really it's the acts of jesus christ it's what jesus started in his earthly ministry and it just continues through his body his people by his holy spirit so this is all that jesus began to do and teach and acts as a continuation of jesus's ministry just as jesus said uh, in matthew's gospel 16 i will build my church that was what he was saying that's what i'm going to go on to do Jesus isn't in heaven twiddling his thumbs today. He's active. He's involved. He's moving through his people by his spirit, advancing something great in this world that will be a spectacle for all to look on at, that will bring him great glory, that will bring huge impact in the communities of our world. That's the destination we're heading towards. So Jesus began to do and teach great things. Now, Luke, he was a doctor, a physician. We see this uh, mentioned several times in the New Testament. He was also one of Paul's travelling companions. He's one of Paul's ministry team. He went with Paul wherever he went. He was a close friend. He spent time with Paul in his last imprisonment in Rome. Um, and Luke was a Gentile. And that's unusual. It was recorded in Colossians 4 verse 11. that Luke was a Gentile. So here we have the only Bible writer who was non-Jewish. That's pretty significant. And I think it's significant. I think it was it's, it's strategic as well. God chose a Gentile to write Acts because... What Jesus began in his earthly ministry was predominantly surrounding the Jewish people. But what God always intended was to impact the whole world. So therefore he chose a Gentile writer, the only non-Jewish writer, to write acts, as, almost as a symbolic act of God's des- desire to reach the nations of the world. And he writes to a guy called Theophilus. In Luke chapter 1 verse 3, he describes him differently. He says, most excellent Theophilus in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. This indicates the excellency. This indicates that this person was a high-ranking official in a Roman government position. So this is Luke, a Gentile doctor, writing to a probably a Roman official called Theophilus. The name Theophilus is also significant. Theo and Phileas, which is two Greek words, which means God and love. Theophilus literally means a lover of God. So this is a high-ranking Gentile official who is a lover of God getting this book. And I believe this book is written for all people who are lovers of God. Has a very brief introduction to the book of Acts, now we're going to get into uh, today's message. And today's message, if you want a title, is Normal Christian Birth. Let me just kind of put this in a context. We're going to be looking at a verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Jesus says, died on the cross for the sins of the world on the third day he rose again victorious that's the biggest message the world has ever heard if you believe in that message you will not perish but you have eternal life if you believe that jesus died for you knowing you're a sinner you needed that to happen and he rose again the third day if you believe that truly and make him lord of your life you will not perish but you will actually have eternal life Life. That's the big message. And after Jesus resurrected, he appeared to his disciples for a period of forty days. And in those forty days, he taught them, he equipped them, he talked to them about the future, he vision cast, he prepared them, he talked to them about the great kingdom that he was the king of. He described all this to them, and then on the fortieth day, he ascended in front of them bodily back to heaven, where today there is a man on a throne in heaven. Wherever that is, I don't know. But Jesus Christ is risen bodily, and today there is a man in the throne of heaven, in the center of the throne, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the lords and the King of kings. And the last thing he said to his disciples was, wait in Jerusalem until you've received power from on high. And we're going to look at more of that next week. And he said, the Holy Spirit's coming, wait for the power, and then go and tell this world the most amazing message ever, that the world that's fallen, the world that's broken, the world that's suffering, the world that's rejected God can be saved because of my death and resurrection. But wait in Jerusalem until you receive the power, to, which will empower you to share that message effectively. So the disciples waited. That was day 40 after the resurrection. And about seven days later, on a feast called Pentecost, that coincided. That was, the same, that was another name for the Feast of Weeks. It's seven weeks after the Passover. It was one of the three Jewish uh, festivals that everyone gathered in Jerusalem for. And here, it was probably early June. That was when Pentecost was. People gathered in Jerusalem from all the surrounding areas. And they were the disciples doing what Jesus had told them to do. There's 120 of them. They were waiting for this promise of the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what to wait for. This hadn't happened before. They were in a room. They were praying. They were waiting. They were calling on God's. And then all of a sudden, there was a violent rushing winds in the room where you thought it was happening, didn't you? <laughs> no, okay. But they were they were in a room, and the Holy Spirit came. It's interesting. The name for Spirit is uh, pneuma, from which we get pneumatic tire. It literally means breath. It's significant that the Holy Spirit came with a breath, the winds. The Holy Spirit came and filled the whole room where they were sitting. And the Bible says there was tongues as of fire distributed on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. <clears throat> and this was a phenomenon. They'd never experienced this before, but they were fluent in languages. They didn't know what they were saying. But they were, um, according to those who understood, they were declaring the marvelous acts of God. In Jerusalem at that time, there were thousands, tens of thousands of people from all different regions and countries and surrounding areas. Medes met people from Mesopotamia, uh, Parthians, people from all different regions and areas who spoke different languages, and they understood that these were the disciples. These were Galileans. These were uneducated Galileans, and yet they were speaking in their languages stuff about God that's saying God's great, God's amazing, God's marvelous, and they were understanding it. So a huge crowd of people gathered to see this spectacle, speaking in tongues, this sign for unbelievers. This incredible thing. People gathered and they were listening and they were watching. And then we find the first mention of cricket in the Bible. Peter stood up with the 11 and was bold. It's true. And there he, he stands up with the 11 and was bold. Thousands of people, I would estimate 12,000 people were gathered. Now we know that 3,000 said yes. But I'm assuming that not all of them agreed with what Peter said. If you have the parable of the sower, one in four of the good seed landed in It was one in four proportion. So it might have been 12,000 people gathered, huge crowds. Peter stands up in front of this vast crowd of people, starts telling them, you think we're drunk? We're not drunk, it's the Holy Spirit. And he goes on and explains, this is just what the prophets had said, and he took them right back to Joel and to other prophecies and described to them what God was doing. And then he went on and he told them the best message ever, that Jesus who you crucified, the one who you rejected, the one you put on the cross, was actually the Messiah, the very one you'd hoped for. And you crucified him. But he died and that was the plan of God and he did it for you. And when he died, that means you could be forgiven and have a new life. And the death, death couldn't hold him because death can't hold God. And God resurrected and Jesus is alive and you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. And en masse, thousands of people that day accepted that message. And that was the beginning of the early church. And that takes us to... Acts chapter 2, 38. Before we read that, there was a lady in a house one day and it was evening and there was a smashed window and in jumps this burglar and starts rummaging around the house and, and she, she, she he walks into the room where she is and, and she, she's absolutely shocked but she's a believer and she shouts, Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized. And the thief ran out of the house through the window. I mean, just, Got away squeaky spot. Anyway, the, the police apprehended the thief, and said, "Why did you run when she said that?" And she said, "He said she has an axe in two thirty eight. I wasn't going to hang around there." Anyway, Acts two thirty eight. So the crowd is gathered. Peter stands up. He tells them about Jesus. And then people say, what must we do? What must we do? What do we have to do to get right with God? And this is what Peter replies. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Spirit. This is it. They heard about Jesus. They knew it was true. They said, "What must we do?" And Peter says, three things: repent, be baptized, and then you'll be, get, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." And that's that's been called the Peter Package. For those who've heard that term, Peter Package—that's what it's talking about. <clears throat> that's what when when someone becomes a believer in this church, we talk to them about this. Acts two thirty-eight. We say it's it's about repenting. It's about getting baptized. It's about being filled with the Holy Spirit. They're the first essential steps in every believer's life. Becoming a believer is like becoming a kid. Jesus described it like being born again. Now spiritually speaking, it's talking about not physically speaking. But just as the early stages of your life when you come into this world are crucial and they really set the tone for the entire rest of your life, so too in your spiritual development. You know, if you're working with someone as a pastor and they're going through big issues in life, Oftentimes, you've got to ask them about their beginnings in their walk with God. You ask them, so how did you start out with God? Because I believe that if you start out properly with God, then many of the issues that many people continue to experience on into their Christianity life could have been averted or diverted or missed if they'd just put things right, good foundations, right at the very beginning. Just as if a child is born and it's born premature or it's born and there's careless treatment of that child at the early stages or there's a bad midwife or for many reasons that child's life can be hindered or undermined from the word go and here we see Peter at the, at the beginning of these thousands of people who were saying we want to get our lives right with God and Peter says here's how you do it he gives them more than most churches would give them today most churches would give them repent but Peter said repent Be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the essentials in a Christian's birth which set them up for the rest of their healthy life ahead. Some some people have asked midwives, so what point is a child born? And that's a highly debated question. Some people say it's when the child comes out of the mother's womb. Some people say, well, it's when the, the cord is cut. Or some people say when it's the... They breathe their first. Sometimes that's induced by the laying on of hands. Uh, and there's debate about, well, when's that child actually born? But all are essential for that child being in this world. That's one analogy. Another analogy is foundations. In Hebrews 6, these verses are referred to as foundations, along with a few other things. In Hebrews 6, it talks about repentance and baptisms and the laying on of hands. Repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says they are foundations in your life, along with a few other things. And just like any house, you don't put the foundation in once the walls are up. You put the foundation in at the beginning. And when the foundation's in place, then you have an infrastructure ready to build well. You see, if you don't have good foundations in a building, it's it's going to suffer in the years ahead. The foundation, interestingly, is unseen. And yet it's one of the most important parts of your life. These are foundations that no one may see. People may judge your Christianity based on what comes out of your mouth or how you act, but they will not see your foundation. The foundation is the unseen essential part of any believer's life. And the foundation, a good foundation, decides the duration of that building. A good foundation decides the stability of that building. A good foundation decides how big that building can get. So you understand that repentance, baptism, And being filled with the Holy Spirit are essentials right in at the beginning of a Christian's life. So what were they responding to? When when Peter told them this, there was a bit before it that they responded to, and it was the message that Peter preached. He said certain things to them that convicted them, and they said, what must we do? And then he said, repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Spirit. Let's backtrack a little bit. Let's look at the message that he put to them. He said this in verse 23. Acts 2, and then 36 to 38. Uh, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. What a challenge. You, by the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. <clears throat> and when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart or at least 3,000 of them were and they said to Peter and the other apostles brothers what shall we do? and Peter replied repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit here Peter stands up with thousands of people gathered and he says you by the hands of wicked men put the Messiah to death What a challenge. Now you think about it. He was standing there. There may have been 12,000 people. The likelihood is that the 12,000 people were not even a percentage of them represented on Good Friday morning at that false trial when they stood before Pilate and they chanted in some kind of crazy deluded state, crucify him, crucify him. Surely only a smallest percentage of the 12,000 gathered were there. And yet, yet Peter stands and challenges him and says, You crucify them! And he was, he was pinning something on people who maybe haven't, weren't even there. He was pinning something so heavy on them that maybe they weren't even there. Maybe they weren't even party to those who called out crucify them. They said, Well, we, we didn't put the nail through his hands. We weren't the ones standing in the crowd shouting, Crucify him! And yet you're putting that on us. That would have been some of the reactions. Others, however, three thousands of them, they had a humble reaction, and the reaction was: You see, you imagine, you're a Jew. All your years and for generations before you, there has been an expectation that a king will be born in the family line of David. That he'll be the Messiah. This will be the rescuer of your nation. This is the big expectation. here you are now, and you've been party to those who put them to death. The hope of the nation. You put them to death. They are now in anguish. They're asking themselves, on the inside, they're asking themselves, is there any God who can forgive someone who put the Messiah to death? That's their cry. That's where they're at. That's why they're broken. Describing this pain in Zechariah 12.10, it says, They will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him as like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They were feeling the pain in their hearts now as if they had killed their own kid. That's how they felt. That they had put to, get to death the Lord's Messiah. And they were feeling it. The Bible says they were pierced to the heart. And <clears throat> Here's the massive good news that murderers of the Son of God can be forgiven. That's good news. That murderers of the Son of God can be forgiven. And I would say that not one of you in this room, if you look at your life and the bad stuff you've done, I don't think anyone could come close to being a murderer of the Son of God. So the great news is, That if murderers of the Son of God can be forgiven, then every one of you can be forgiven. That's great news. That's great news for those who know they need it. If you think, I'm fine without forgiveness, thanks, then it means nothing to you. But if you realize how deep you've gone, then you you understand that's great news. If murderers of the Son of God can be forgiven, then you can be forgiven. If I believe this, I believe that not just were they maybe party to those who crucified the Christ, but I believe there was national guilt on Israel for the rejection of the Messiah. We see that in that generation with the judgment on Jerusalem, there was national guilt because of their acts. But I think it's much bigger than that. I think there is human guilt on the whole world for the rejection of the Messiah. That it's not just the Jews who rejected Jesus. It's the world that has rejected God. So the same guilt, the same brokenness, that same piercing feeling, that same weeping, that same sense of utter despair should be felt by all humanity before God, whom they have rejected. We would have been the same. We would have shouted, crucify him. John Stott said this. He said, before we can see the cross as being something done for us, We must see it as something done by us. See folks, the reason that sin is so vile is not because of the consequences that we experience. That's bad. Sin is so vile not because of how it hurts others. That's bad. But sin is so vile and ugly it's because it's offensive to God. And if you're more upset about the consequence of sin or the potential of hell than you are of what it does to God who made you, then you've totally missed, completely missed what you should be feeling bad about. We have offended God, the creator, who loves us with an eternal love. That's the problem. That's what's to be repented of. That's the issue. Charles Spurgeon said this, if I had a brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Surely... Surely I too must be an accomplice in the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend of it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? Jeremy Taylor, putting things in perspective, said this. No sin is small. It is a sin against an infinite God and may have consequences immeasurable. No grain of sand is small in the mechanism of a watch. You see, this is where I think we've got to get this right. Repentance. This is the first step. Some people have repented for the wrong thing. Some people, being scared of hell, have turned to God. And you feel sorry because of the potential of going to hell because of your sin. You've missed it. We've offended God. The byproduct is hell. But the biggie is the broken relationship between us and God's the biggie some are so devastated because you see the ongoing sadness of a wasted life you think i've wasted my life because of sin and you're living with lots of regrets and therefore you turn to god to try and rescue your fallen apart life but you've missed it that's just secondary that's just byproduct the biggie is you've offended god and it's because of that we need to repent it's the realization that you have sinned against God, the glorious, awesome creator of the universe. It's that realization. That's the one that should get us so deep, that should move us to ch- change our lives more than anything else. Because it's for love for him that we live. So they experienced deep conviction. The Bible describes it this. It says that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. The Greek word there is for cut is... Catanuso, which means to pierce thoroughly, to agitate violently. It can also mean to sting sharply, to stun or to smite. They were cut. It's like a dagger went in and was shaken. They were cut so suddenly, so sharply, something just penetrated them. Listen, if that hasn't happened to you, I can't do it for you. I can't make that happen for you by loading my words strongly. That, That has to be God that does that for you. And a moment happens in everyone's life where something happens deep in here. It might not have been exactly the same as this, but it, it's, it, there's a pattern. And you're convicted. And you think, I need God. And they were cut to the heart. And there was, they were crying out. And then there was conversion. There was with no crying out. There was no conversion. You see, they didn't have to be mollycoddled to be converted. They, they said, "They didn't say, All right, do you want the next step now, guys? No, no, they said, Tell us what we must do. 3,000 of them says, what must we do? In front of all their buddies, in front of all the Jewish nationals, probably the majority of the crowd was quite contented that the Christ had been killed. Probably the majority of the crowd thought, okay, the guy deserved to die. He was making false claims. But here 3,000 of them say in front of their buddies, in front of their national pride, in front of what other people think, they said, what must we do? Because they knew they'd done something wrong, colossally wrong. And they said, we need saved. Uh, John MacArthur said this, if conversion is to be genuine, if if the conversion is to be genuine, it is the offspring of conviction. That it comes from a conviction, not just a, all right, I think I'll follow God. No, no, you know you need him. And it's from that you say, God, I need you in my life. They cry out, brothers, what shall we do? And this is where Peter replies, Step one, repent. What is repentance? Well, repentance is more than feeling remorse. I was caught. Or, you know, I'm a bit low about my sin. Repentance is something deeper than just an emotion. You see, already they were cut to the heart. That's an emotion. They already felt remorse. But Peter said, you now need to do something with that remorse. You need to now repent. That's different to remorse. The word repent in the Greek language is metaneo, which means to think differently, to reconsider. Now, when we think of repentance, most of us would define it, change your behavior. But that's not what the definition is. When Peter says, this is what you must do to be saved, he says, repent. He says, change your thinking about God. Put your faith in him. Run to him. See him as your Lord and Savior. Stop living your way, start living his way. Change your minds. He didn't say do something with your behavior to get saved. You can't do anything to get saved. But you change your mind about God. That's repentance. Now it leads on to change of action. But the primary thing is change of minds. The secondary thing is change of action. That's why John the Baptist in Matthew eight three eight said this. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, produce fruit. Fruit is the outward behavior change. Repentance is the inward mindset change. You see, the fruit isn't the repentance. The fruit fruit is the outworking of what repentance went on in here. here. It's a change of the inside condition. It's saying, I'm no longer going to live against God. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to believe in you, God. I'm going to give my whole life to you, God. Many people who are who consider themselves Christian or religious, have gone the wrong way around. So what they've done is they've changed the behavior without having the change in the inside. And they look religious, and they say they're religious, and they attend religious ceremonies, and people would call them Christian. But unless the change has started in here and then manifests itself in outward change, then it's the cart before the horse rather than the horse before the cart. Repentance is a change of insides, and then it results in a change of the outside. This is is described well when Jesus commissioned the apostle Paul. When Jesus appeared to Paul in Damascus Road, he commissioned him. And it's described in Acts 26, 17 to 18. And this is a good description of repentance. It says, I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance with those who are being sanctified by faith in me. You see, it's, it's a turning. It's a decision in the inside. And it's turning from to. It always is. Repentance isn't just stopping something. It's starting something new. It's turning from something, yeah. But it's turning to something, absolutely. And here it says turning from Satan to God. It's turning from darkness to light. You could put other things in there. You could say turning from self-reliance to God-reliance turning from pursuit of pleasures to pursuit of God's honor. You could, you could put lots of things in there, but that's what repentance is. It's turning from to. And listen, repentance is not just turning around, it's removing the opportunity to go back. You see, some people have, you say, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore, but you keep the stuff in your life. And it never works. I love the story of um, Julius Caesar when he arrived on the shores of Britain. Well, all his armies, they were there to conquer. They were single-minded about that one. When they arrived, he made a very decisive step. He scuppered all their boats. He burnt them all. And he took his soldiers to the cliffs of Dover and got them to look down. And there in the water below them was the boats that they'd just come across the channel in being sunk. And in other words, they knew in their heads we're here to conquer. There's no retreat. That is no longer an option. <clears throat> and when you repent... You've got to actively put things in place that you cannot even return and go back that place. And some of you, you've wanted to do the will of God, but you've kept stuff in your life that shouldn't be there. You've tolerated things, and they have become tripwires to you. It's like the Israelites when they were taking the land. God said, remove all the inhabitants, otherwise there'll be a snare to you. And some of you have taken a bit of ground, but left little things going on in your life deliberately by choice, and it, it keeps coming up and biting you and pulling you down. It's like when we looked at the church of Ephesus. What happened in the church of Ephesus was that they knew they wanted to serve God. So a lot of the people who were involved in occult and magic arts, they literally burned all their occult books. They had to have a burning ceremony. They didn't just put them in the shelf. Oh, now we won't look at them again. Because then they were still an option. They burned them. It no longer had any effect in their lives. <clears throat> so some of you, you've got to repent. And you've got to put things in place so that you no longer go the places you used to go. Some of you, it means you've got to stop going, hanging around with those people. Now, oh, but the Bible says we should be friends of sinners. And I agree. But you should be friends of sinners when you're recovered. When Jesus was a friend of sinners, he wasn't tempted to go with the prostitutes. When Jesus was a friend of the tax collectors, he wasn't tempted to dabble in a bit of fraud. You know, Jesus was, it was no issue for him. If you have an issue in an area, if you have an issue with drunkenness, don't hang out with drunks. Right? You know, if you, if you have an issue with an area in life, you know, either change your friends or change your friends. But influence does flow one way or another. So make the choice. You've got to think bigger than, than the moment. You've got to think longer term. You've got to think recovery. You know, you've got to repent. You've got to clear your hard disk of the stuff. You've got to put in software that stops you going to those sites anymore. You've got to stop your membership to certain magazines. I don't know what it means for you. For me, when I repented, I had to, literally that night, I, I, the first thing I did was I, I, kept, I hid my beer in the long grass along a lane beside my house. I stood before the Lord and I, I poured out a drink offering. I, I poured out the beer. Now, is there anything wrong with having a beer? No. But was it wrong for me? Yes. Because that represented the nutty life I was living. Then I went home that evening and the same night, I had books I knew I shouldn't have had. And I didn't put them in a charity shop so that someone else could be affected by them. <clears throat> I ripped them up and bin them. I had tapes. I had material I knew I shouldn't have, and I didn't. I didn't say I'll record over it. No, no. I said, I ripped the tapes up. I wasn't going to let my emotion hijack the moment tomorrow. See, that night I could have been all zealous about it, but then the next day I could woke up and think oh, I was maybe a bit too radical there. Listen to the tape again. No. I just ditched everything that I knew was possibly dangerous for my life. And even a few things that I didn't need to ditch, but I didn't want to risk it anyway. I was just radical because I figured it's going to take everything to follow God and I don't want anything to hold me back. So repentance is blocking off the way back. You know, a big issue, a big issue that many believers struggle with is, does God reject me when I keep making the same mistakes? It's all right once or twice. But what about 10 times or 30 times this morning? You know, I keep doing it and I say, I'm sorry. So did I really mean I was sorry when I'd keep doing it again? So I'm not sincere. I'm a hypocrite. How can God forgive me? Well, Jesus said this because he knew humanity. Luke 17, 3 and 4, he says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day, and seven times a day comes back and says, I repent, forgive him. Now we would get hacked off with the brother who did that. Because <laughs> you didn't mean you know, you hit me again. You didn't mean you were sorry. You just did it again, I repent. Okay, I forgive you. It just goes on and on and on. We're gonna to start to think you're not very sincere about your repentance. How do you think God feels? <laughs> right? We get hacked off if someone does it seven times since. We do it multiple more times stuff to God. And God keeps forgiving. Jesus put this in place and he talked about human relationships because we could understand it. But he actually is communicating about God, how God works with us. He's saying that's how you should be with each other because that's how God is with you. It's incredible. God keeps forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. Peter came and said to him, maybe it was in the back of that first verse we read Matthew 18 then Peter came to him and asked Lord how often should I forgive someone who sins against me seven times no Jesus replied seventy times seven You're still not getting this I'm not meaning literally seven here I'm saying don't, don't count you see humans count God's not counting God just forgives God's desire is to show mercy, not judgment. God's desire is to show forgiveness. God is slow to anger, but abounding in love. You see, you keep sinning, you keep blowing it, but you ask forgiveness, so you're a winner. If you start saying, I'm not even going to ask forgiveness now, then you have lost. The failure is not the person who falls down. The failure is the person who stays down. So you get up, you go again. The big question I always ask is this, are you a pig or a lamb? See, if when a pig falls into muds, the pig likes it. The pig thinks, oh, this is all right. starts rolling in the mud. But the lamb, when it falls into to mud, it goes,
1: Mah.
0: Ah. that's lamb for, get me out. The lamb hates the muds. It wants out the muds. So what's your attitudes? Are you a pig or a lamb? You blow it. You sin. All right, I'll just hang around here for a bit. Or is it, God, what on earth have I done? If that's the attitudes, it's emotionally hard. But that's life. Tough. Keep picking up. Keep going. That's life. You're a human being. You need God. By his power, he'll help you. But you got to keep going. You've got to keep picking up. Next time, go with more passion. Go again. Keep picking up. Proverbs twenty four sixteen: The righteous man falls seven times. He rises again. But the wicked are brought down by calamity. Okay. <clears throat> what do I do if I sin? How do I deal with that? Well, First John 1, 8 to 9 says this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right, so not one of you in this room can claim to be without sin and the fact is you're all thinking if you knew the sins in my life I'd be ashamed if they came up on the big screen behind me I'd be utterly ashamed because it'd be total exposure yet God knows that about you and you think to yourself well how could I be a believer with that stuff the Bible here says if anyone claims to be without sin you're deceiving yourself the Bible acknowledges that not one person is without sin Repentance doesn't mean perfection. It means trying your hardest. It means you've changed the direction of your life. It says, if you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourselves and truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's amazing. That's too easy. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. This is to do with his justice and his faithfulness, this thing. It's because of him that he will forgive you and cleanse you. So you sin. And this time it was a biggie. You go to God and say, God, your Bible says if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just. So I, I confess my sins. Please forgive me. I said, God, please. I really, it was a big one this time. So please, would you forgive me? God, saying, I did. God, I really think... This time it was just so bad. God, would you forgive me? Okay, God, I really mean it now. I did. God, I really think this time I've just gone. I pushed it way, way, way too far. I'm going to sit and sulk for a while. What the heck are you talking about? I forgive you. If you confess your sins. So what What, what we we think, the big sins... You've got to get over it emotionally before he forgives you. Like your emotions have got anything to do with what God thinks about you. Nothing to do with what God thinks about you. Sure, you feel emotionally damaged by it. And rightly so, you're a nut. And sure, you might live in consequence for it. Rightly so. Cause and effect. Sow and reap. That happens. But did God forgive you? That's got zip to do with your emotions. It's got everything to do with he is just. Just. And faithful to forgive you. Wow! And not only to forgive you, but to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. My dad has a vegetable garden around the side of his house. Now, it doesn't look like a vegetable garden. The weeds are kind of a metre and a half high. It looks like a weed garden. (laughs) But it is a vegetable garden. And it always will be a vegetable garden. It's just not matching its potential just now, really it's got tons of weeds and what's happened is it's just been left unweeded for too long and now the task of getting it back to be a vegetable garden just getting a bit harder and every day that the weeds are allowed to grow it gets much harder to reach its potential but it doesn't stop being a vegetable garden so you blow it you sin my advice is just get that weed out quickly don't revel in it don't let it be there don't let it take root just deal with it quickly he cleanses you from all unrighteousness you don't cease to be righteous in the sight of god you're righteous because of what Jesus did, not because of what you do or don't do. Your faith is in him. You have repented. You've, you're, in your heart, you've turned the course of your life towards him rather than away from him. You're now righteous for all eternity. That's good news. Hmm. Now, the bad news is I've got two minutes on my phone here to finish the next big points. <laughs> and that's not going to happen. C.S. Lewis said this. A silly idea is current, that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about their badness. They have lived in a sheltered life by always giving in. And this is the case. The more you want to do the will of God, the more you may be aware of your failings. But take that as a compliment. <laughs> Gee, thanks. It doesn't feel like a compliment, but it is a compliment. Because you're fighting. And sometimes you're fighting against the grain of yourself, your old self. You're fighting against the grain of the world around you. You're fighting against the currents. But the fact is, you're fighting. And that's a good sign. And that's an honourable thing. Then, this is where traditional churches mostly stop. They say, Repent. But that's not where Peter stops. Peter goes on and says, Repent, in verse 38, and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be baptised? In the next minute, I'm going to tell you. So keep okay for another 10 minutes? Is that okay? Three of you. Okay, for the, for the three, the rest of you can leave, but the three, if you want to stay, I'll talk to you. The word baptism in the Greek language is baptizo, which means to immerse or to submerge. That's what it means. So Peter, now, what we, now what's happened is, that's not what baptism means in our language. Baptism means 101 different things in our language. You ask someone in Gorgie Roads, have you been baptized? They're going to answer yes or no based on their definition of that word. But their definition of that word isn't necessarily what the real definition of the word is. You understand? We've used tradition to define a Bible words, but the Bible never wanted tradition to interpret it. The Bible word should just be what the Bible word is. So let's forget the word baptism. Let, let me just ask you a question. Have you been immersed? That's the question. Not have you been baptized? Because the tradition's clouding our understanding of that question. The question is, have you been immersed? That's what the word means. It was used in those days to describe the dyeing process where they took a natural colored cloth and they dyed it in a dye and it came out a different color. That was the word they used to baptize it. It was dyed, it was dipped, it was plunged, it was submerged. That's the word that's been used here. So when I'm saying, the question is, have you been baptized? The question is, have you been immersed? It it cannot be any other question if you look at what the original language means. Don't fight for your tradition if it's contrary to what God says. Your allegiance is not to your parents primarily, although it's good to honor your parents. Your allegiance is not primarily to your tradition, although some tradition is good. Your allegiance is to God's who you say is lord his word says baptize which means immerse and it's also for believers you never have an example there are 31 occurrences of the word baptism in the new testament not one of them did it happen to someone before they were a believer so peter does your church believe in adult baptism no peter does your church believe in infant baptism no What does your church believe in? Believer's baptism. It it means nothing to do with your age. It's everything to do with, are you a believer at whatever age you're at? My little girl last week got baptized. She's eight. She is an authentic believer. She's had a great week, by the way. God's been speaking to her tons. Um, I'll I'll tell you a quick story. I know we don't have time, but I will. (laughs) Uh, The other night there, she she was uh, lying in bed and... She'd read the Bible and uh, she'd gone to, gone to kind of lay down. and I put my head in and said, You're right, Becky? I said, Yeah. I said, Did God speak to you tonight? I said, Yeah. I said, What did he say? He said, Well, I went to sleep and I thought, There's something wrong. I said, God, what's wrong? And God said, You haven't prayed. <laughs> ah, and Dad, he was right. I hadn't. <laughs> How cool is that? So that was a good one. <clears throat> but. We believe in believer's baptism, nothing to do with age. Everything to do with where you're at in your heart. Have you repented? Have you put your faith in him? Taking your faith off other stuff, putting it totally on him? Have you turned from sin to God? If you've done that, then get baptized. Don't do it the other way around. That's unbiblical. Don't do a baptism that is not involving immersion. That's unbiblical. So whatever your tradition says, if it doesn't say immerse then it doesn't say baptism. And if it doesn't say for believers, then it doesn't say what the Bible says should happen to you. So you might have a dilemma. You might say, well, Peter, it's wrong for me to get baptized again. And I would agree. You only get baptized once. But I would say you weren't baptized already. Something happened to you that people called baptism. But if it it didn't line up with what the Bible describes as baptism, then don't use the title. So don't worry about it. You can get baptized and it won't be baptism again. It's for the first time because you haven't had it before repent and be baptized immersed for believers that's what it says and here's two errors that commonly come up how many people incidentally were christened as kids hands up okay let let me just talk to you about that because i was too error number one is that christening is baptism that's a big error here's the three big dangers with that statement christening is baptism it tells people that they are Christians if they've been christened. I remember going to my... I was godfather for uh, my nephew. And I went to his christening and I, I heard the minister lie. He said, we now welcome you into the kingdom of God. I thought, he's not in the kingdom of God. He's a little sinner. He's not in the kingdom of God. <laughs> I didn't say that publicly because I thought... <clears throat> but how can you at that point declare he's in the kingdom of God? But he, was, he was like still poo in his pants and stuff he, he hadn't even had a, any thought let alone a god thought right how can you declare he's in the kingdom of god now, i believe there's a grace on kids i believe there's an age of innocence i can argue it from the bible but i would say that there comes a moment where you start to have a conscious decision you believe God's, and not based on your parents' decision but based on your decision you become a believer and then we can say you're in the kingdom of god and we've got bible reasons to say that but to say that before then is dangerous and there are many people in scotlands walking around and you say are you a christian said yeah i was christians they believe they're going to heaven but they're going to hell they've been sold a lie and that's dangerous here's another danger some wrongly argue that grace is transferred to a child by the grace that's on the parents they say well the parents are believers." So therefore, christening is a way of seeing their grace on the family imparted to them. That's not Bible argument. And it also communicates a, a lie. And the lie is that grace comes by something other than the faith. Grace comes by faith. And here's another danger. Christening, this is a big damage. Christening robs a believer from the experience and memory of their baptism. Which means so much... To those who are baptized. If you've been baptized as a conscious believer, how many people know the memory of that is hugely powerful in your life? And you rob someone from that if you preempt that process. The arguments for christening, well, the strongest and most credible argument comes from Colossians two 1 to twelve, sorry, eleven to twelve, where it likens christening or sorry, baptism to circumcision. And let me say why that's a flawed argument. So they say, well, to be a Jew, you were circumcised as a child into the Jewish community. And the Bible likens that to baptism. And I agree, the parallel is there. But let me make a couple of important points. Circumcision was the covenant sign of becoming a Jew. Baptism is a a sign of your covenant with God in the New Testament. Uh, Jews were the natural offspring of Abraham. Christians are the spiritual offspring of Abraham. You become a Jew by being born into a family that is Jewish. You become a Christian, however, by being born again. Faith and then baptism. Not the other way around. So that's a flawed argument. Another argument people use as well, the Philippian jailer in the New Testament his whole family got baptized. And I agree they did. And this is what this is the verse that they, they read from. It's in Acts 16, 31 to 33. And this is uh, Paul replies to this Philippian jailers. And the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household." And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. So who did they speak to? They spoke to everyone in the house. About Jesus. At that hour that of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. So some people say, see, there may have been a kid in that family who got baptized. It's arguing from silence. There may have been a kid. And there may not have been a kid. But either way, what's the bit that Paul said before that? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Believe. And he says, you and all your households. So it wasn't just that the whole household had got baptized. It was that the whole household had to believe in the Lord Jesus. So I would say that they had to be of a conscious age where they could make that decision. And here's another big error, and this is is one that you may have come across. How many people have heard that you need to be baptized to be saved? Hands up if you've heard that. Put your hands up so I can see that. You've heard, you need to be baptized to be saved. Okay, there's, there's certain churches, but they're not really churches, they're cults, would say this. Um, the one is called, ironically, the true Jesus church. It's anything but, but anyway, and they, ha- they, they have a, they have a meeting place in Edinburgh. It's weird. The true anything. It's like the true church, the one and only the real one. You think you've got an issue. You're slightly insecure about yourself here. Okay. Um, and then there's the international church of Christ. I mean, a great name, but that's off track. And this is one of the areas it's off track in. And Then there's the seven day Adventists. They're off track in this area. And there's the United Pentecostal Church. Now, Pentecostal churches are great, but the United Pentecostal Church go down a couple of wrong routes, and this is one of them. They believe that you need to be baptized to be saved. And they take it from the verse we start with, where Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. For the forgiveness of your sins. I need to get baptized for the forgiveness of my sins? Well, that's... If you look at the context of the verse, and every verse should be looked in its context, otherwise you can argue anything from the Bible. If you look at the verses before, I believe it's in verse 21, just before that, Peter says this, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You're saved by calling in the name of the Lord. And then in one statement he says, now this is what you do, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, which is to do with the repentance really, not to do with the baptism. By calling on the name of the Lord is what saves you, not by baptism. Um, You remember the thief on the cross? Dying there beside Jesus. He said, Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, today I tell you, this day you will be with me in paradise. If you can figure out some way (laughs) of getting yourself Baptized. It's not in there. The thief got to heaven because of how good Jesus was and because of his faith in Jesus. <clears throat> Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul, who was previously called Saul, he had the Damascus Road experience. He met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He was converted. He was filled with the Holy Spirit after a guy called Ananias prayed for him. Scales fell from his eyes and then he was baptized. You're not going to tell me he wasn't converted before then. The Apostle Paul had his conversion on the Damascus roads. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, God's total seal of acceptance. And then he was baptized, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 10, the Apostle Peter turns up at a guy called Cornelius' house. He tells him about Jesus. In verse 43, it says, Acts chapter 10, 43, All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. What do you have to do to receive forgiveness of sins? Believe in Jesus through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came and all who heard the message. What was that? Well, that was God saying, They're mine. Then verse 46 says, Then Peter says, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Notice they had received the Holy Spirit. How many people know that means they were most likely saved? Right? They were saved. Before they were baptized, they were totally accepted by God. Then, notice what Peter says. Though. Listen to the priority. Having said that, baptism isn't essential for salvation. Listen to what Peter says. He says, "So he ordered that they be baptized." All right. If you haven't been baptized today, I want to give you a Bible verse here. I order you to get baptized. That's pretty strong. Would you agree? Usually, we don't say that. Usually, say, "You might want to consider getting baptized." But that wasn't notice the priority that the early church placed in it. While it was not essential for salvation, Aaron Baxter, one of my favorite preachers, said this baptism is not essential for salvation, but it is essential for obedience. And this is the normal Christian birth. Repent properly. Not because you feel bad about yourself, not because you're scared of hell, because you offended God. Repent. Change your mind, resulting in change of behavior. Repent be baptized, be submerged. No other way. There is not one example of any other way. That's what it means. Be submerged. Not as a kid, pre-understanding, but as a conscious decision as a believer. Repent, be baptized. tell you, these foundations build a strong house. Solid house. Then it goes on to say, and you'll be receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Here's a quick film clip from some of the guys in our church and how baptism has impacted their lives.
1: Baptism for me was a really important step. Um, when I first got to know God, I, I didn't take my faith too seriously. I, I wasn't that dedicated in coming to church. I didn't pray or read the Bible or invest in Christian friendships. I've been a Christian for a long time since I was since I was young, about eight eight years old, but I never really understood a lot about baptism and it wasn't something that I was ever told I should do. I, I never realised it was a, um, one of the crucial steps.
0: Baptism for me was really just the next step after becoming
1: a Christian. Um, I knew God had made a huge change within me. It changed my heart. Um, and he opened the door for me to to be baptised a few weeks after that. I chatted about it with my mum, and she was really against the idea. She had uh, got me baptised as a kid. She'd prayed about that and felt that was the right thing, and so she, in her opinion, I didn't need to get baptised again. One of my spiritual mentors from before I came to university in Edinburgh and started going to Destiny Church, um, her and my mum and myself, we were with a trip out in, in Israel, and she sat me down and spoke me through a lot of the doctrine to do with baptism and I really felt there that um, I should get baptised. It was very cold, we did it in a a river in the River Tay on a white water rafting trip. It was the most exciting thing I think I've ever done. It was just a, a point in my life where I was it was just a way for me to show people that change that
0: had taken place within.
1: The representation that you have of um, your your old life dying and being born again, it does actually feel that way. I felt like a a release, um, a joy. As soon as you've come out of the water, it's it's gone. God's done that for you. His His grace has taken away all the sins of your life, and you've got Jesus's perfect record. My faith. Uh, Just developed exponentially from that point on. The the whole week that followed, that God slowed down time for me, and my my work was amazing. It was totally productive. University was awesome. Just personal stuff was amazing as well. It wasn't long after that I actually found myself in Bible college, which was not part of my plan at all. Um, And I think it was like God just saying, you know what? You're going to take me seriously. I'll take you seriously. Let's do this thing.
0: Very good. When you talk about baptism, it's actually a burial. Romans 6, 2 and 4 says this. We died to sin so that we no longer uh, live in it any longer. Do you not know that all who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. in uh, In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism is a burial. It'd be the most ludicrous thing to bury someone who's still alive. no oh, come on. You need, sorry, we, we are burying you. Stay down. No, down. I'm not dead. Stuff, just down. It'd be the craziest thing. In the same way, you know, it's, we, your old self is still alive. You haven't repented for your sins, and yet you have a christening. Doesn't make sense. You die to your old self, and then you bury that corpse. It's like you die to your old self, you're carrying a rucksack around. And at your baptism, you take the rucksack off. It's the burial. You walk free. It's paralleled in the Bible with Moses' journey with the Israelites. Moses the deliverer, just like Jesus the deliverer. Moses came to set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt. Jesus came to set the world free from slavery to sin. Moses took the Israelites out of Egypt. That place of slavery was taken into a promised land. Jesus saves us and wants to take us to heaven, but also a purposeful life. On that journey, they came up against a barrier, the Red Sea. Egypt was coming to get them. The promised land was ahead. The barrier was there, the Red Sea. There was no way back because of Egypt. In fact, Egypt was trying to pull them back. So what they did was they went through the Red Sea and Egypt went in with them. And they came out the other side. But Egypt was buried. Their old self was literally buried there was now a barrier between themselves and their past and they were now in a wilderness heading to a promised land so your life when you become a christian you're, you're freed from the slavery of the past but now the bible says "Bury the old life bury it it's not just symbolic it is highly powerful my baptism i got baptized in a little gypsy church attended with tons of traveling folks in kirk just outside glasgow and my life, that was a moment my life turned around. And I, I wasn't when I was part of Destiny Church, I was part of a very traditional church that didn't believe this stuff. They, they would teach christening. My mom and dad taught christening. But I saw it in the Bible and I took the step and the impact in my life was colossal. I want to encourage you, take that step. Time is gone, we're going to have to end there. But on the 7th of March, we're going to have a baptism service. And if you're here today and you know... Uh, you're a believer but you haven't been baptized have you been immersed as a believer if you haven't been immersed as a believer then i want to encourage you nicely if the apostle peter was here he would say i command you to get baptized on the 7th of march if not today but he's not here so i'll just say would you consider getting baptized on the 7th of march if you want to get baptized um, go to the visit's information point put your name down at the end of the service We'll contact you. If you've got any more questions, we'll answer your questions. And we'll put your name down for baptism. 7th of March, there are going to be baptisms both here and in Leith. Both, both locations in, in the 10.30 30 and 12 o'clock service. Take that step. The last step that Peter ends with is you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to focus on that majorly next week. And we're going to look at the implications for our life. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much uh, for the amazing people in this church. I want to thank you for your love for them. God, I want to thank you it was your love that caused you to come into this world. And you were willing to die on the cross to save us from our sins. To pay the ultimate price so that our sin could be removed. That we could be forgiven and we could have eternal life. I want to thank you for all my friends here today, God. Thank you, God, for everyone who has made that authentic decision to repent to give their lives to you, to follow you, to turn from their ways and turn to your ways I pray God that there be authentic repentance in our lives, not remorse not regret but rather there be a a positive change of mind that results in a change of behaviour God I pray for anyone today who hasn't taken that step I pray God that you give them the courage this day to take that step, to repent, to not tolerate sinning against you anymore, but to say, Do you know what? Enough is enough. I cannot live without God. And that today they would make a choice to put you first in their life. Pray for those who haven't yet been baptized, who haven't yet been immersed. I pray out of allegiance to you rather than tradition that you will give them the courage to go for it to take that step to take you at your word just while we're in God's presence for those who maybe you're a Christian maybe you've left the avenues open in your past and you're dabbling with stuff you shouldn't be dabbling with you haven't been the stuff you should have been you haven't cut off the the inroads into your life that you know you should have cut off. You haven't burned the books you should have burned. There's stuff going on and you are allowing it to go on. It's time to be serious about your faith now. It's time to repent. You're offending God. Turn to Him. Repent. Maybe you're a believer here and you've been arguing a case for not being baptized the way God says I want to encourage you to repent in this moment make a decision to authentically pursue the Bible's way on this if you're here today and you you know that you're not right with God you know that you're not yet saved and in your heart you're feeling that conviction that that you were cut to the heart just like it says in the Bible they were and in your heart you're crying out Peter what must I do to be saved and I would say repent then get yourself baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit God I pray give them the courage today to authentically turn away from their old life and turn to you Jesus be their Lord if that's you today you want to get your life right with God then I invite you to pray this prayer with me just now just quietly under your breath use this as your moment where you repent pray with me dear Lord God thank you for your love for me I acknowledge that I've been living a life that is offensive to you and dishonouring to you I've been sinning today I I repent Lord Jesus I realize you died on the cross so I could be forgiven you rose again so I could have eternal life today out of honor for you I turn from my sin and I turn to you I renounce my old life I pursue you God and I will get baptized and I receive your gift of new life and of the Holy Spirit Jesus be the Lord of my life from this day forward Amen Can you keep your eyes closed if you prayed that prayer I'd love to pray for you in order to know who I'm praying for I'm just going to ask you to do a simple thing in order to know who I'm praying for while everyone else is praying just identify yourself to me before I pray for you. I want to know who I'm praying for. Just identify yourself by quickly raising your hand just now, up clearly so I can see it. Just raise your hand. Thanks. Be up clearly. Anyone else? Put your hands up clearly so I can see them. Anyone else before I pray? Dear God, I thank you these individuals today who have said yes to you. God, they are saying they're going to follow you. They're going to pursue you with all their heart. I pray, God, that you would fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let them live an authentic believer's life. I pray they will find their great purpose in life and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We're going to worship God.